Welcome to the Basto Podcast, conversations with big thinkers about the big questions in education and leadership today. I'm Angela Scafidi. Dr Barbara Blackburn has dedicated her life to raising the level of rigour, engagement and motivation for professional educators and students. Barbara is an educator, an international speaker, a consultant and an author. She's taught early childhood, primary and high school students and she was a professor at the University of North Carolina. Ranked fifth in the top 30 global gurus in education in the United States, she's used her expertise and her experience to train educators and to write 23 best-selling books. Barbara was in Melbourne earlier this year as part of the Education State School Leadership Conference. So welcome, Barbara. Thank you for making the time. Thank you. You've obviously had a long and varied career in education. Has it always been your passion? It has. Uh, My parents were both educators. My father was a teacher and a coach and also a university professor. And my mother was a school secretary uh, at the time. And so I grew up in an education household. And I always knew I wanted to be a teacher. And I joke with people that my parents have proof. They have a picture of me. I'm about seven or eight years old. And I'm standing at a chalkboard apparently trying to teach our kittens how to read. And how did that go? Uh, Not very well, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly not. So you specialise in the areas of rigour and motivation in education. How did those interests develop for you and why? You know, the motivation developed when I was a teacher because if you can't help motivate students, then it's very difficult to do anything else. So I was always interested. Several years into my career, I began teaching struggling learners uh, specifically. They were separated out into a different class, and that's who I taught. And a huge issue for them was motivation uh, because they had been labeled as struggling learners, and so people didn't want to teach them. I was very excited to teach them. And so what I noticed was that they had lost a lot of their intrinsic motivation because people didn't seem to care about them. And nobody paid attention to what they valued. And that's a real important piece with intrinsic motivation. And so, you know, I really paid a lot of attention to what it was that they needed. And so, for example, uh, they were very upset with our textbooks because they were green. (laughs) And you're probably wondering, what do you mean they were green? Well, that was the problem. And what I was able to track down was that when they changed classes, All of the students in the other classes had blue textbooks, and theirs were green. So everybody knew they were in what they called the dummy class. And so I immediately went to my principal, said, here's what I need. And instead of using the textbook for reading, we bought a newspaper for reading. And so they would get to read about sports and about the stock market. And all of a sudden, they became the popular kids because they were getting to read real news instead of a textbook. And so that piece with motivation really sort of stuck with me. And the rigor piece, I would say, goes back to the same thing because one of the challenges with those students was that nobody expected them to do very much. And I found that when I expected them to do more, they did more. And so it wasn't what they could or couldn't do. It was what the teacher does to help them get there. So what does rigor look like in a classroom or in a school? Rigor uh, is not what you expect. Uh, Rigor is not double the amount of problems or homework. Rigor is about the quality of what you do and helping you learn at a higher level. So let's take an example like vocabulary. You know, when you and I were in school, we probably had to copy the definition. 
write our own definition, write a sentence. You know, that's what we did. None of that is learning, and it's certainly not rigor. We memorize it, and that's it. So in a rigorous classroom, what I'm going to do for them to show that they understand the word, I'm going to have them write a riddle and see if they are able to express the meaning in clues instead of just rewriting it. And so the students are involved, they're motivated, and they're working at a much higher level than if they were just sitting there copying. And so that's what rigor looks like. So what would be in a rigor checklist if you were creating a checklist? Um, One, it would be uh, questioning, and that's something that people tend to look for, is, uh, is the teacher asking higher order questions? That's not enough for rigor. It's not only are they asking a higher order question, it's also what kind of answer are the students giving? Because if I ask a very complex question and you give me a one-word simplistic answer, that's not rigor. So it's, is there complexity in the questions? Is there complexity in the responses? Uh, It's also looking at uh, the depth of the work. So, for example, in a maths classroom, uh, doing 20 fraction problems. There's no depth to that. They're very simplistic. What I'm going to do is maybe do eight of those, and then I'm going to give them a question with multiple problems that are already solved, and they have to figure out which one is incorrect, solve it correctly, explain why it was incorrect to start with, and then explain why they know it's right now. And as you begin to look at that, that complexity and depth, and those probably are the two top things I look for in terms of not just what the teacher is doing, but what is the student doing. And, you know, there are other pieces. For example, how is the teacher supporting the learning? Because if you ask students to work at a rigorous level, they're going to need help to get there. So what gets in the way of rigor? What are the obstacles and how do you overcome them? Uh, I think the first obstacle is expectations. We think a student can't, so we don't even ask them to try. Um, I think another obstacle is a lack of understanding. I don't know what rigor looks like, so how am I supposed to do it? Or... I'm already doing rigor. I certainly don't need to do any more. So that whole lack of understanding is a piece of it. There is resistance from students at the beginning because all of a sudden they're doing more, and particularly advanced students who are, and I was one of these students, so I I totally sympathize, but oftentimes an advanced student is used to doing something, doing it quickly, doing it well, and making an A. And all of a sudden with rigorous work, they may still make an A, but they're having to work at it, which is great but not for them necessarily. So you get some resistance there. Surprisingly, I find resistance from parents, really for the same reason, because particularly if their uh, son or daughter is used to making A's and all of a sudden uh, they're struggling to make a B, they don't like that because I like to be able to go to the store and I like to be able to talk to my neighbor and say, hey, my son's making an A, and that may not happen as frequently. Um, And then I think sometimes it's just an overall, I'm tired, this is one more thing. You know, if you really want me to do something, show me how to do it. And the principals I've been working with this week left very equipped to be able to answer that question. And many of them came and spoke to me and said, I could not have answered that question before. And now I know an example to give teachers so I can say, this is how you do it. So apart from that sense, maybe from some educators, we're already doing this work. Are there mm-hmm. other are there other myths potentially around rigor that that exist? Oh sure, uh, I think the first one is uh, rigor is only for certain students. 
So it's only for advanced students. It's only for motivated students. So if a student has special needs or if a student um, doesn't show a lot of motivation, well, I don't, I don't need to do rigor with them. Or they're not in an advanced class, so rigor's not for them. Um, and, I, and I find that to be very prevalent, uh, which reflects low expectations. Uh, so, for example, with students with special needs, well, of course they can't do it. You know, they're just in special needs class. And so we really begin to write off students uh, without realizing maybe that's what we're doing. So that's probably the top one. Uh, and that one is held by educators and parents. Uh, and oftentimes it's held by students. I can't do anything because I'm in a special ed class. Or I can't do anything because my brother was smart or my sister was smart and I'm not. So that whole expectation piece is huge. Um, a second myth is that rigor is more so again, it's doubling the homework, like I said earlier, versus rigor is more in-depth versus just more. It's quality over quantity. Um, I think sometimes I meet people who believe that rigor is about having a certain resource. So if you have this book or this computer program or this technology, then you're going to be rigorous. And it's never that. It's what do you do with what you have, whether it is high-tech or low-tech, because I can have really great technology, but if I don't use it correctly... It's not rigorous. And I can use very low-tech, even outdated materials, and I can make them rigorous if, if I want to. So I think those are some of the top ones. So we know that leadership plays a major role in shaping a school's culture. How, how do you lead for rigor? Oh, that is something we have been talking about for the last three days. And it was interesting because uh, in the session, we did not actually talk about here are three things leaders can do until the end. And the first part was about what is rigor? What does it look like in the classroom? What are activities you can go back and share with the teachers? And intermixed in there, I talked about what you can do as a leader, but I didn't just stop and talk about a leader. Because uh, if you don't understand rigor and if you're not grounded in it, you can't lead it. So shaping culture, celebrating uh, success, uh, having a shared vision, building ownership, all of those things that are really important you don't understand rigor, and if you don't know how to explain it to somebody, I don't care what you do with those others. It's not going to happen. So it's that important. Absolutely. Um, so if you were trying to improve the level of rigor in a school, who would you bring together to have that conversation, and how would you work with them? I would start with a select group of teachers uh, or maybe teacher leaders and it's different in every school, so I think principals have to determine who that is. Um, but what you want, once I understand it, I need to broaden that. And some people make the mistake of just, let's just throw it out there for everybody. And I tend to find in schools that if you can get a little bit of support and momentum going, then it's easier to get the support from other people. Because many times teachers will resist something the principal's doing because it's coming down from the administration. But if I can get a group of maybe five or six teachers on board and they're the ones sharing it out, then it's perceived very differently. So I want my leadership people on board, but I really want to try to identify selected teachers and then move out. And I think one thing I'm careful about, uh, we all have those hotshot teachers who are the best at everything. And the reality is they're going to be on board no matter what. And so it's nice to talk to them about giving other people an opportunity to be on a leadership kind of team. 
Um, and I also think you have to think hard about your most resistant teacher. Because if you can get them on board by involving them, that's great. But too often they become a distraction and a deterrent. And so I think sometimes you have to think about it and say, if, if their goal on any new initiative is going to be to destroy it, that's not who I need to involve to start with. I need to get some people excited so I can move forward. And really a good way to think about it um, in the literature on leadership is that if you have, let's say you have a certain number of teachers, you've got 5 to 10% that'll do anything you ask, and they're on board no matter what. You've also got 5 to 10% that will do nothing you ask, no matter what. Then you've got 80 to 90% in the middle, that those are the ones you need to convince, and that's where you need to spend your time. And so I'm going to try to pull together a team somewhere there with maybe one or two from that top percent, just for some leadership and momentum. But I'm going to really put that there, put that momentum there, so that then they can begin to carry it school-wide. Because we probably, we used to probably put a lot of energy in the resistance. Absolutely. And probably it was a distraction in some ways, as you say. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying totally ignore those teachers uh, because there's value in working with them and trying to coach them along. But the mistake we make is that we spend 90% of our time with 2% resistant teachers and we lose out on all of the ways we can make a difference with the rest of the teachers. So what strategies would you recommend for motivating educators and students, including leaders who may be struggling with rigor? Okay. Well, motivation is actually pretty easy. <laughs> uh, making it work out is not, but how to do it is, it actually really boils down to two things. Everyone, whether it's a student, a teacher, a parent, uh, an administrator, everyone is motivated by two things. They're motivated by value and they're motivated by success. So we are all motivated by two things. We're motivated by value and we're motivated by success. So uh, we are, first of all, motivated by value. And that encompasses a couple of things. First, it's relevance. Uh, if I want to uh, meet with a principal and I want him or her to, to uh, look at some new resources, if I can't show that principal why that's important to him, her, or their school, then they're not going to pay attention to it. If I'm training teachers, if I can't help them understand why it's relevant, they're not going to pay any attention. And the same thing's true for students. And what's interesting is that relevance sometimes is different for us and for them. So, for example, when my niece, Jenna, was in year one, she uh, was not excited about math and they were learning how to add. And the teacher kept talking about, well, how you're gonna use this at home and you're gonna to get to add things together to make cookies and all of these things. Jenna didn't care about any of it. And then one night, Jenna calls me, she goes, Aunt Barbara, Aunt Barbara, I love addition. And I said, really, Jenna, what happened? And she said, we took a test. At which point I was a little stunned because <laughs> that's not usually how people get excited. And I said, well, what happened? And she said, there was this problem on there and it had the name of my dog in it. And so now I love addition. Okay? So relevance for her was very different from relevance for her teacher. And so I think when we talk about relevance, we've got to consider that. So if I'm a principal, I may be pushing, we need this initiative because this is how it's going to improve our school. But I may have a teacher who just got a divorce, who's trying to single parent four kids, uh, has an aged mother that she's trying to take care of. And she's just trying to get through the day. 
And it doesn't mean she doesn't care about the school. It's just that she can't get there right now. So when I talk relevance, I have to look at what, what you're concerned about and meet you where you are. And ironically, we do that with students. We know to meet them where they are. We forget to do it with teachers. And so value can be relevant. It also can be activities and relationship. So most of the time, if I'm going to do something with kids, if I can get them to do an activity, it's better. The same way with teachers. Instead of just saying we're going to do this, if I can get them involved in the decision-making. And relationship, everybody's more motivated by relationships. If you have a good relationship, you're going to be more motivated to work with that person. And the flip side is also true. And then you've got success. We are all motivated by feeling successful. And if we don't feel successful, then we don't want to try. And that is very true. Many, many students, they, uh, their experiences in school have been failures. So we have to learn to coach them into success. And for many teachers, uh, they may have experienced success, but I don't want to try something new because I'm risking that I'm going to fail. And if I'm a teacher, I'm failing in a very public forum. And I may need assurance from you that if I try something and it doesn't work and parents call, you're going to have my back. So we've really got to look at value and success. So, Barbara, our listeners love to hear stories of where the work has been done and the impact that it's had. Are there stories that you could share about either work you've led or work you've seen happen in this kind of rigor space? Oh, goodness. I've worked with so many different schools and districts. And what's interesting is they all do it a little bit differently. They all have their own path to creating a rigorous school. But there's some things they all have in common. Uh, first, they all focus on building a shared vision. So they don't talk about how we're going to get there until they figure out what does there look like. Because we just start doing things, and then nobody's on the same page about that vision. So everybody has a shared vision. Uh, there's usually broad teacher involvement, so it's not just the principal or a district leader making a decision and handing things out. So there's definitely broad teacher leadership. Um, and then I think third is the focus on the students. So the reason we want to increase rigor is because it's going to benefit the students. And so between vision and uh, really pulling people together in terms of involvement and looking at the student impact, those three things are common across everybody I've worked with. If you were a leader in a school or a network today, uh, where would you focus your energies? Particularly, I guess, if you were starting this work, where would be the, I think you've just, and you may have just talked about it. I'd start with grooming teacher leadership. I'd, I'd start grooming those teachers who, are, who can make changes. Um, and that's probably not what you were thinking I was going to say, because people tend to jump to, I'd get teachers to implement things in the classroom. Well, if you groom your teacher leadership, then they'll implement things in the classroom. So I'm going to back up and take that step first. So you've published 23 best-selling books. <laughs> yes. I'm just going to say that again, 23 best-selling <laughs> books. Uh, what is it about your books that resonate so much for your readers? They're very practical. Uh, what I tend to do is take a complex subject such as rigor or such as rigor and assessment or rigor and differentiation. So I take a complex subject and I make it very practical and easy. Uh, and I know that sounds, how can you take a complicated concept and make it sound easy? Well, you just need to make it clear and show a lot of examples and make sure people understand exactly what they can do 
And I'm always real clear that what I'm suggesting is just a suggestion. And the best thing they can do is take these and adapt them to meet the needs of their schools or students. And so it's, it's really interesting because that's the number one thing people comment on. But I'm also going to tell you a secret. This is my test of the books. <laughs> and I always do this with my editor. I have this wonderful editor in New York. And she and I will get a, a copy of a new book. And we'll both stand there. And you can hear us flipping the pages. And we do the flip test, which is when we flip, is there a chart or a graph or a subheading on almost every page so that it doesn't look hard? So we have lots of practical tools. And then we'll flip it and we'll both go, okay, it looks good. And so we have a lot of fun with that. And that sounds little, but again, it makes it real easy. Uh, and it makes it seem like I can do this. And that's really ultimately my goal. It does sound from what you've talked about that, that it is really about what are the two or three things you can do? Mm -hmm. Where do you start? How do you, how do you compile it in a form that resonates for people? Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because... You know, when we try to read a book and go do 50 things, we do none of them well. Or we read something and we go, wow, that was really good, but I have 20 other things to do. I can't look at any of these. But if I can say, here are two things or here are three things, figure out which one you want to try. And not only do I want you to try it, I'm going to give you a, a chart or a table that guides you through how to try it and gives you some questions. Then you'll go try it. And so that's what I do. Great. So who has influenced your thinking along the way? You know, I thought a lot about that when you told me you were going to ask me that because uh, for everyone listening, I'm sure you're going, okay, who's that researcher? Who's that book I need to go buy? And there are absolutely people that I buy their books regularly, you know, Marzano and Hattie, and then I go for whatever the subject is, if it's differentiation, I go to Carol Ann Tomlinson. So I do that. But the person who has influenced me the most is my father. Um, he was my first teacher. He has always been my best teacher. He has modeled so many different things for me. Uh, one that I remember, I was in, I was in uh, secondary school, and my father, as a second job, worked as a referee for uh, basketball games. And I went to a game with him. And it was very, uh, you know, the fans were a little bit... Uh, you know, I don't know if your fans get this way, a little bit strong. <laughs> and um, so they were yelling at him and making all, and I was so upset. I'm sitting in the middle of them and listening to them yell at all this stuff, and I was so upset. And we get in the car to drive home, and I'm like, Dad, how can you, how could you just listen to all that? And he said, I don't. He said, I shut out what is negative that I don't need to hear, and I pay attention to my job. And that has always served me well because... It's too easy to get drawn off your focus. So whether it's negative or just something that's good as opposed to great, you want to keep your focus right where it is. And then the other real key that he taught me was what the real purpose of education is. Because we talk a lot, well, it's to prepare students for life. It's to, it's to prepare them for university, all these things. And this is what he told me the uh, purpose of education was. And he said he heard it from a third-grade teacher. He said the goal of education is to be able to figure out what to do when you don't know what to do. And I love that because if you think about it, that encompasses everything. And for me, that's what rigor is. And he has, he has always been my best teacher. For years, he read drafts of every book I wrote. 
Uh, that has had to stop because he's developed Parkinson's, so he can't really read and process as much. But he still has me tell him what's in every book so that he can give me feedback. And I, I think that for me, not only has he been a role model, but he shapes my thinking every day. So, Barbara, how did you get to where you are today? Oh, my goodness. I, that is a roundabout question. Um, I've already told you I always wanted to be a teacher. So I became a teacher. That, that was what I did. I taught uh, different grade levels uh, just for a variety of things. And then when I went back to get an advanced degree, I became certified as a school principal. Um, and I wouldn't say it was necessarily because my dream was to be a principal. Uh, my principal came to me and said, you know, unless you get this degree, there's really nowhere for advancement. So you need to get that particular degree. And, and I liked it. There were a lot of things I liked about that. And I trained under him to be a principal. And uh, an opening came up in his school, in our school, and he was going to hire me. And he came in one day and he says, I need you to go find a different job. <laughs> And I was like, what have I done? And he said, well, the superintendent has just told me that you are 27th in line in terms of experience, and I'm not allowed to hire you because you aren't senior enough. And he said, you really need to go find another job because you're too good to wait that long. So I actually became a consultant. I did training and presentations for uh, textbook companies, and I did a lot of training with teachers on how to use the materials. Uh, I did one technology-based company that way. So I did that for, I don't know, about 10 years. And then I went back to work on my doctorate because I, I always wanted my doctorate, probably because my dad had his doctorate. So <laughs> there was probably that reason. <laughs> so I went back to get my doctorate. And while I was working on it, I also taught at the university level. Um, and then when I graduated, I got a job at a university, uh, not teaching undergraduate students, but teaching teachers who wanted a master's degree. So they're coming back for that advanced degree. And I loved it. One of my favorite things in the world was, was getting to do that. And I became so close to those teachers and saw such a passion for learning because they not only wanted to help their kids learn, they wanted to learn, and they wanted to model learning for their students. And so I did that for about 12 or 13 years. And um, about 10 years ago, I got married, uh, and my husband lived two hours away. And so I got married. I inherited a new stepson who was 12 years old at the time. I am writing books. I am on the road speaking, and I'm driving two hours each way to the university to teach. And one day my husband looked at me and said, you know what? Something has to go, and it can't be me, and it can't be Hunter. <laughs> and other than that, figure out what's going to go. So I left my university position. So for the last 10 years, I write and I speak full time, and I absolutely adore it. Every day I get to know that somewhere in the world someone has read something in my book that is making a difference with some student. And I, I get to know that every day. So I may not be teaching students directly, but I'm teaching them indirectly, and I'm getting to do it every day. And then the bonus is I get to travel sometimes and work with teachers and principals and help reinvigorate them and inspire them and just help them know that they can do this. They can take something that everybody thinks is really awful, like rigor, and they can go use it to make a difference. Barbara, have you ever been tempted to send your 23 books to the person who decided that you were 27th in line 
Just a little gift. No, I have not ever been tempted. And, and you know what? Let's go back to my dad. You keep your focus where it's supposed to be. You don't look at everything else. And so uh, I, I have just stayed real focused. And ironically, where I taught was also where I grew up. So people there know me and my parents. Um, and so they're all about, well, you know, your mom said you've got another book or your dad says you've got another book. And how many is this? So people know me and know that. So she probably does know. But uh, I have decided not to be mean. <laughs> sounds like a very good strategy. And I, your father sounds like a fabulous human being. I will tell you that one of the highlights of my books is that four years ago, before he uh, started uh, get, going down here with Parkinson's, we wrote a book together. And he had never written a book. That was one thing he had never done. And so uh, we wrote a book that's very geared for the U.S. market on how to be an advocate. How do you work with the government to advocate for children? How do you advocate to parents? And my co-author on my leadership books joined with us. But, you know, I was able to give my dad a copy of a book that had his name first and my name second. And you know what? There's nothing that beats that. Would that be the favorite book, Barbara? Oh, no, don't ask me that. That's like asking me which child is my favorite one. Ah, no, I, I refuse to say that. <laughs> Do not make me pick. Thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed myself. Thank you for listening to the Basto Educational Leadership Podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, why not tell your friends and colleagues and join us next time. You'll find episodes on the Basto website and you can listen or subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.